This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. This is Ariel Adams, and you're listening to the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Sylvan Berneron. He's the creative director at Breitling. Sylvan, welcome. Thanks, Adam. Hi. Thanks, Arthur. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the so one who's late at night for me. It's uh, You don't have the excuse. You must not be a morning person. No, I am, actually. I am an early person. Well, Sorry. Went for the family name. Sorry, Ariel. No, it's 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 actually funny you say that. It's the most common thing that happens to me. I don't know if it's because names are different other places, but people like always want to call me by my last name. It's 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 the most common thing in this industry. I don't know why it is. It's never entirely been explained to me. But um, what I'm saying is, don't worry about it at all. Um, but we had a great conversation a couple of weeks ago in Zurich mm-hmm. at uh, the Breitling event, and you were up there on stage with Mr. Kern and talking about the new Navitimer. Now, I guess my question is, how many people are responsible for the design of One Watch? So uh, at Breitling, we are uh, the design team is, is composed of eight people. Uh, five of them are watch designers, and we also integrated a CGI department of three people. Um, and usually, so I'm in charge of the whole, the full product portfolio, and I and I would dispatch the, the workload accordingly. Considering my previous experience in the design field, I always found that uh, it's better when a designer can own a collection uh, because I, I don't believe in in having multiple people bringing their input into one product. Right, it, it usually doesn't end up uh, being coherent. So. Uh, for the Navi timer specifically, I took care of it myself, uh, considering the how how high the stakes are for for the brand. So so I've been the one doing the the Navi timer. Now there's so much that goes into watch design, even though it's a small space, and I think a lot of people don't appreciate how complicated it is. They don't know how many years it takes to come out with a new watch. You know, talk a little bit about the the difficulty, especially for people on the outside. There's a lot of amateurs out there. They're like, I can do this. And, you know, they'll learn, I don't know, Illustrator or some other type of design software, maybe Photoshop. And that's not really what you're supposed to do to make, you know, an actual manufactured item. But talk a little bit about some of the sort of the unknown complexities of designing a watch these days. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. First of all, um, I've been in different fields before. I've been uh, drawing, for example, motorcycles and cars in, in, in earlier in my career. And, and I always found it easier, this discipline, because you have ergonomics, aerodynamics, technical surfaces, and therefore people understand that the object feels a lot more complex on watches, as you described, because it's an object highly technical, but at the crossroad of jewelry as well. You have a lot of people, as you said, coming in and say, oh, I could do this. I would have done done it this way, or why don't you try that? When in fact, uh, a mechanical wristwatch is a very, very complex uh, object to manufacture and conceive. The number of components is crazy. It's like building a, a car 
uh, at a very small scale. So, for example, the way we do it, uh, if I talk about the, the Navi timer, this project took us three years to from the first sketch to the launch we had a month ago. The movement is the Chronograph B01, highly complex movement. Uh, years of research and development went into it. Uh, it takes also months and years to make it reliable and to make it uh, efficient in terms of use and, and the torque you have to apply to make it uh, work. The finishing is also very uh, complex and, and, and the process we usually do is we first look back, uh, talking about the Navi timer, we look back in the archive, what is this piece, how did it evolve over the years. So the first step is always, especially in a long-lasting brand like Breitling, uh, I think any designer has to understand uh, the feel of the brand and the tone of voice of the product before he can put it, his hands on it. That's very important. Uh, but is, that's a lot of things. Do you do all of those things yourself? Uh, for the Navi Timer, yes, I, I did all of this because I have uh, I have three very talented designers with me. All of them have a dedicated collections. Beginning of the year, we usually split the workload. Uh, we discuss together who likes what and who has strong ideas for each product. And this is how we usually split the, the, the workload. I think it has to speak to the designer as well. It's much easier when you, when you feel you could be a potential customer for that product. It makes a huge difference. I mean, you're bringing up so many like points. I'm like trying to think where what direction it taken in because the, the reality is the discussion of watch design forget watch functionality or watch history or anything like that but watch design as a topic is so rich and so robust and requires so much knowledge from so many different corners i mean it is it is truly a humbling experience isn't it yes yes in fact uh for example, to do a watch properly, you have to have knowledge in the straps. So that would go from rubber to leather to metal. Uh, for example, these three fields only requires years of experience uh, to make a good metal strap, metal bracelet, or a good leather strap, or a rubber strap. You need to master the knowledge of how these things are made. Uh, the technical choices you make will have an influence on the end product and how it feels. Then if you jump on the case, it's the same. Uh, you need to know about uh, stamping, finishing, uh, CNC machining. If you go then to the glass, whether you go for sapphire or plexi, you need to understand the difference and know what are the consequences. Same goes for the hands. Uh, then the ergonomics also takes some years to understand uh, how long do you want the lugs to be, how high do you want them to be. And, and, and at the end, uh, this is why it, it's such a rewarding discipline, I feel, because uh, unlike uh, the car world, for example, where the designer is locked with a lot of legal requirements, uh, in the watchmaking industry, all the, the, the boxes are open uh, and it's up to the designer and the brand to make choices one after the other and, and they will all influence the, the final character yeah. of the piece. Because like a car or a motorcycle has to be like street legal and not kill you. And a watch exactly. really doesn't, there's no regulations. 
I mean, yes, here and there you have Swiss made and ISO certified once in a while, but for the most part, like you can sell a watch and <laughs> it doesn't have to do anything. Yes, yes, and, and, and that's the, the, the pure joy of doing this job because, and this is why I love it so much, you have all the freedom of a jewelry designer combined with the, the, the complexity of, of a highly technical object, which is what drives me as a designer. I, I don't like to doing a free form just for the sake of it, which is why jewelry never really attracted me. Uh, but combining a highly demanding and technical movement within an uh, aesthetically pleasing form is really what drives me and, and it's the same for, for my guys in the team. That's where we live. I've always been interested in this special type of character that the rock star designers have, which goes back to what you said, where you combine this ability to make a good technical machine but also you said jewelry, which is sort of like something pretty. Because most of the time, the person that wants to make something pretty, he or she's a dreamer. And they're thinking about their imagination. What could you make? But they rarely think about, can this be made? What material would it be made in? Like, would it be wearable? And then you have the other end of the spectrum, which is the ultra pragmatic engineer who's like, I'm trying to make something which is like cheap to produce and like is going to have the least amount of parts and, you know, will do its function and not really thinking about is it pretty. And to get a nice watch, you have to have the most elegant combination of both of these completely opposing things. So like the people that can do both of these things are rare and unbelievably valuable to this industry. What, what do you, what do you have to say about that? Yes, it's a discussion I have very often uh, in, in, in the process of making new product. Because on, on one side, for example, I have um, movement engineers and technical constructors, and they tell me, ah, Silva, you know, this plan you have on the case, it's a pain to produce, it's a pain to finish. Well, why can't we just skip it? Yeah, And it's a very rational approach, and I always tell them, look, guys, let's not forget we ask a high price to our customers to acquire this piece uh, and they have to feel the sweat we put into it. So there is no shortcut to this. I know it is hard to manufacture and to produce and this is precisely why, why we've done it. Yeah, like that's the point. Like that's <laughs> yeah. why we charge $15,000 because it's hard to make. If it was cheaper, yeah. it should be, you know, <laughs> and, and different that's story. What, that's what gives the emotion at the end on the product. So on one side, I have the pragmatic guys, so case constructors, movement engineers. And on the other side, I have my guys, designers, which sometimes tend to behave like, like crazy artists. They come to me and they say, ah, you know, why is the movement so sick? Why can't we just like skip the rotor or whatever? And I, and I also have to tell these guys, look, uh, <laughs> making a good looking watch is for sure our, our goal, but don't forget, this is a Breitling. It has to stand the test of time. And we are known for building watches like tanks and they have to stand all the things that the, the client will throw at them. So... This is not a blank piece of paper. If you want to, to, to do freeform, then you're no longer a designer, you're an artist. And, and to me, this is really where the designer brings an additional value. He has to understand the brand and serve the philosophy and the tone of voice of the brand. This is extremely important. And I try not to be guilty of it myself. Uh, when we draw uh, 
we should not forget what we that we draw for Breitling. I don't draw for Silva. I don't. I'm not here to please myself. I'm here to serve the brand and and to make it last. And and what I draw has to be deeply rooted in the in the Breitling philosophy. Those uh, are all wonderful values, and I'm sure a lot of your contemporaries and colleagues feel the same way. And I think what ends up happening, and I'd love to hear your feedback on this, is so many of the watches that are made end up looking a lot like the watches from the past. And you know, this is has a marketable component to it. But I think many people always talk about wanting to see more novelty and, as they say, innovation in the industry. What is holding back innovation from a design perspective, in your opinion? First of all, I agree that the, the watch industry as a whole has been for my taste, uh, a bit too conservative that the last 10, 20 years. If you look back in history, especially 60s, 70s, even 80s, watch designers could had their hands free for the sake of what we call progress. Uh, it was very well accepted to come up with crazy shapes and ergonomics. In the early 2000s, I think, Brand names became much more important in, in, in the way people buy things. Uh, and, and we see it with the, the top 10 brands in, in the watchmaking industry. And very often I, I, talk, I take the time to talk to non-watch people, but still people who, who buy watches um, just one or two. Uh, and they are not watch geeks how, uh, as, as we are. And if you ask them, why did you go for that? Usually the first thing is, is the brand. They say, oh, I bought a, you know, I bought a Breitling, I bought an Omega, I bought a Rolex. Because they recognize themselves in the brand and, and apparently brand recognition and status symbol is unfortunately for me something that is still quite important uh, for customers these days. Uh, and I like to believe that that we are slowly coming to an end of this period, uh, and that now, regardless of the size of the brand, uh, I feel that there will be a good era coming for designers to to go back to the drawing board and and break the rules and try new things. I I want to talk a little bit about history before we leave this topic because I'm I'm so fascinated by it, and I remember. When I was looking at a lot of watches from the 1990s and into the early 2000s, you actually saw a lot of design experimentation from mainstream watches to, you know, very high-end exotic, exotic watches. But there was a lot of, you know, what we would call novelty, a lot of being innovative and pushing the envelope and, and definitely trying new things. And then it almost abruptly stopped at some point. And I'm thinking to myself, if those experiments would have been more successful then you know that would not have stopped. So I'm wondering, what was it about that period of experimentation that was about 15 years that didn't go well enough for the watch brands to want to continue doing it, and they sort of reverted into this weird kind of reset? I mean, I'm sure you've noticed it as well. Maybe you haven't thought about it that way, but what can you tell me that I don't know about that period of time? I, I, so, so I believe from 60s to 80s, it was uh, shape experimentation. And as you said, 90s, early 2000, it was uh, a more technical innovation period. Um, and how, that, how I see it is innovation and, and new things in general are, of course, great because it keeps the momentum going. But uh, we always have to put in balance 
how complex and unreliable the object becomes compared to what it brings. And we've seen in this period a lot of watches uh, becoming too complex just for the sake of it, so to speak. So, so you end up with a product that gives you the wow effect for 30 seconds, uh, and in the long run, your eye gets quickly familiar with it somehow, and you end up only with a watch that is hard to wear, maybe too big because the designer sacrificed the size just to place the complication in. On the long run, I think a, a good watch is a watch that you can live with for many years to come. And if too many sacrifices have been done on ergonomics, size, maintenance as well, just to amaze you the day that you buy it, this is not a watch that you will uh, love on the long run. And I, I believe this is what happened in this period. Interesting. I, I, I can't disagree at all. And what comes to mind is the fact that many of the people that were designing watches in this period were not what you might consider a watch designer. They were people that came from other backgrounds who had some type of industrial design experience or education, and they were told design watches now. And if you don't really understand watches and only know what they look like, you won't understand, like you said, ergonomics and wear and tear and you know how, they, how well they age over time. And so my next question is, why... Why is there a lack of watch designer education? Majority of people in your position, like yourself, come through some type of automotive or vehicle design and then end up in watches, which so astutely, like you said, is like a miniature version of a car. Why is there no watch design schools or not very many? There, there might be some very small niche programs here and there. Yeah, as far as I know, uh, if we have some design students listening, uh, the two dedicated schools that I know on earth, which offer watch design dedicated program are uh, the, the L'Ecole de la Rappliqué de la Chaux de Fonds in Switzerland and the Creative Academy in Milano, which is a very, it's Richemont owned and Richemont driven, therefore. Uh, but it's right that as a design student, you won't find a, a watch dedicated cursus simply for the reason that it is way too complex to master this discipline. As we talked early on, you won't find the teachers that will explain you all the different type of straps, how they are made, and then what machines uh, needs, need to be maneuvered to, to make this happen. Same for case, dials, hands. It is too complex. So the closest you can find... Uh, as a, as a student, is a cursus that will teach you technical objects combined with some kind of design restrictions, whether it is uh, ergonomics, aerodynamics, and technical surfaces. And usually, uh, this is transportation design. And even in transportation designs, you can do... An I have some friends from school right now. They do trains, helicopters, boats, cars, uh, and yet we have the same diploma. And when I talk to them now, 15 years down the line, their uh, skill set is diametrally opposed to what I, what I acquired over the years. That's interesting. And as you're talking about, I'm, I'm thinking even more deeply about the topic. And what, I, what I've realized is that yesterday's watch designers, the ones that were raised in an era where 
industrial design was something where watches were much more a part of because watches were a more pedestrian item. Everyone had one. It wasn't just an enthusiast product. And they all died out before your generation of watch designer ever came around. And so the recent generation of watch designers, even the ones older than yourself, they had to learn a lost art. So a lost art was had to be rediscovered and analyzed with a lot of mistakes. And then only after that, it could sort of be built upon. And maybe that's one of the sort of fascinations of the vintage ones, because the people that came up with them obviously knew what they were doing, but none of them are around anymore to ask any real questions to. Um, yes, there's some great watch movement makers and things like that. But as we know, even the best of them are self-learned, you know, restorers and things like that. So, you know, what do you think about the fact that we, to a degree, are still engaged in a period of relearning lost lessons about, you know, uh, visual interfaces and analog dials and proportions and whatever? Yes, and, and it is very true, but let's not forget the watch industry suffered the quartz crisis where... Uh, Every watch designer had to rethink the whole exercise uh, because the, the paradigm shift. Uh, I think fifty year, until fifty years ago, a watch was first and foremost a tool, and the designer was there to make it uh, readable, uh, acceptable in terms of ergonomics. Uh, and make sure that the finishing and, and the, the overall quality and feel of, of this tool was as high as it could be. Uh, but the designer was here to follow uh, the technical uh, parti pris, if I, if I can say, the, the technical uh, objective. Then the, the quartz crisis came along, and no one could then justify uh, to spend that much money uh, on a Swiss mechanical watch when any quartz uh, derivative that would cost uh, 1% of the price would actually be 100 times more precise. So it changed the, the whole game. And, and as we all know, the watch industry is, is quite conservative and, and, and this implements a lot of companies that have to reshuffle the whole uh, set of of, of tools and machines in their companies. They have to change the skill sets of their employees. So I believe it took at least 20, 30 years before uh, we could see the birth of, of new uh, type of products that were more design-driven than technically driven. And this is when uh, actually the, the, the highly technical pieces or design complications, uh, I would call them, uh, started to appear in the early 90s and 2000s. Uh, I think this is when the industry realized, look, we now have the opportunity through mechanical movements to display some kind of aesthetical complications. But as, Such as a we great said, perspective. Such a great perspective. But I think we went too far. And it's interesting because you, you could see this evolution in cars as well. In this period, you had cars that were stupidly complex just for the sake of it. You had these V16 engines and, 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 and <laughs> crazy doors and then cars that, that were, yeah, just complex just for the sake of it. It was more like a, a context of who can make the most exotic package that you can find. 
and and so you have these cars like Bugatti, EB10s, and and Jaguars. Uh, all these cars, they were, yeah. You, you, it was more, uh, yeah. I would say brain context of of like, look, we went the the, the we did the extra mile, and and it cannot get more complex than this. Uh, but on the long run, as we discussed, these these cars they don't stick because they are way too complex to live with on a daily basis and that kills the love that you can build over time with these objects which is Look, why I, I will say that a lot of those over-engineered things that you're talking about came about when there was an incredible level of consumer competition meaning people were buying a lot and brands were scrambling to show off uh, that they could earn it you know that that next higher amount so it was. I think it just means that the market was very, very good. We always see this type of wild, sometimes, as you say, indulgent level of research and development when there is, you know, very robust consumer activity. And today, it's not that the activity is bad, but it's very different type of activity. I, I don't know. Maybe you agree, disagree? Uh, I agree that these days we have to be a lot more pragmatic. Uh, and the 21st century brought a, a new set of problematics as well, such as climate change and uh, exhaustion of fossil resources, for example. And designers have to take this into consideration. We can no longer, uh, what we used to call progress in the, in the before 2000, changed in the 21st century. It's not about... Uh, making the, the most complex object just for the sake of it. Now we have to be more pragmatic and, and bring the value where it matters. That, that's my take on it, uh, at least. I don't know if that answers the question. No, absolutely. Look, it's just I love speaking intellectually about what people oftentimes approach almost emotionally. And watch design appreciation is really, for most people, an emotional exercise. They look at a design, they ask themselves how they feel, very few people really get into why is it designed that way? What were they trying to do with it? You know, what is the history of this type of design? And just going back to the topic about dials and sort of lost art, we have a similar situation as an emerging art in the smartwatch space. And I have watched very carefully from the beginning of this, this new category till now to see how these people have tried to figure out the dials and the designs and I'm not saying it's perfect now, but it's really come a long way from, you know, five or 10 years ago when smartwatch dials were either boring and hideous or okay because they copied, you know, a traditional watch dial. You never really had this sort of native design sense. And you're starting to get more and more of it now, but that's, a, that's an emerging industry of smartwatch dial and interface design that has a lot of parallels and I, and I hope, I hope that people who do this professionally, meaning design and, and, and implement smartwatch dials, may, as a hobby or maybe as a different career, go into traditional watch design as a slightly different challenge because we're sort of talking about this context of it just being basically on a vehicle and automotive people who, who go into watch design. And sometimes it turns out great and sometimes... As you said, you have a lot of weird over-engineered stuff that you don't really need. And I'm so excited about this idea of people approaching watch design from a completely different mentality, more of a uh, a visual user interface mentality. You know what I mean? 
Yes, and you can see some some hybrid proposals, like for example, uh, the work that Benoit at Resence is doing. I think he's he's, he's kind of uh, making a bridge between a connected watch and a traditional watch, and he has this very balanced proposal between. Uh, I think the, the main difference in his proposal is, for example, that the the, the sub dials are moving on the dial. And, and and this, to me, in terms of interaction with the product, is an interesting connection to the world of uh, smartwatches, where yeah, the dial absolutely. is made of pixels, and therefore you can move things, which is an option we don't have when we make traditional watches. So these are two very different exercises. Uh, in terms of pure aesthetics, I love and I respect smartwatches for all the, the additional features that they bring to the user. But in terms of aesthetics, I, I find them quite uh, too flat, in my opinion, pretty much. And the definition on the screen, uh, you can't have these sharp edges uh, that we have using normal dials. Uh, and therefore, uh, ten, even 10 years ago, we thought we could have actually an overlap or... Um, some products uh, competing with each other, traditional watches and, and smartwatches. And I think now, 10 years down the line, we see that there is a clear split between these two type, types of products, in, in my opinion. Can the same brand do both and do them both well? I know that, from, in my opinion, Tag Heuer is an example of a company that's able to do a smartwatch and traditional watch as well. I don't see any reason why Breitling couldn't be. I know that internally there might be disagreements to that, but isn't it isn't it the type of thing where a brand could ostensibly do both things at the same time, even though they are different, as you said? It's a hard take. Um, I will speak with my guts. In, in my opinion, I don't think a brand can do both disciplines to the highest level uh, at the same time. And why? Because the set of tools that you need to make these things are diametrically opposed. If you want to make uh, cutting-edge smartwatches, you need to be uh, an MIT kind of startup mindset company. You need to, to speak to Google, you need to speak to Apple, you need to speak to these guys and the set of uh, employees and, and expertise that you need to, to gather is completely different uh, to the set of skills that you need when you want to make art in the sense of uh, mechanical stress movements, uh, where you need uh, engineers and, and guys and, and watchmakers, traditional watchmakers. You need to understand the finishing. You need to understand all this. So uh, mastering both at the highest level, to me, would uh, end up in a very schizophrenic company, sort of speak. Because you, you can't you can't apply finishing on a, on pixels and at the same time you can't make subdials move on a traditional movement or at least not at the price uh, tag is that these brands operate in. It's a, okay. All right. So here's my perspective, and again, maybe I'm being a bit romantic about it, but let's go back to some of the golden age of 20th century sport watches and sort of the mid, you know, let's say the 1950s or something like that, mm-hmm. and. Let's look at the emergence of, of of something like diving watches, or you know, aviation watches or driving watches. And what you had is you had people that were wearing them, and then being like, you know what, I wish it did this, or it could do this better, or this finishing is off. And so 
I call these people, they were sort of like the wear tester engineers. And they would like actually seek out situations where you would need to have timing and there wasn't an instrument for it. So they create something new. And I believe that the next generation of smartwatch engineer is going to be more like that than what some people might think of as like, you know, sort of like a data scientist or an engineer sitting in coding. Because I believe that the evolution of smartwatches is going to be like the evolution of wristwatches, whereas you're wearing it doing things and then you ask yourself, shouldn't it do this? Shouldn't it do this other thing better? What if this? And then they report that back to the engineer or the designer or whatever and say, hey, try to make this type of thing. And because this was the golden age of the wristwatch industry, I think it's the same culture could apply. So that's why I say, why can't it be the same company? Because you're right, it would be a different team implementing those instructions, but it's always sort of been this sort of, you know, gearhead adventurer telling a manufacturing company, make this for me. And that process, in my opinion, has resulted in the most timeless, iconic, and enduring watch designs. And that's sort of where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah, I hear you too. Yeah. But the... the to me, the biggest enemy of the connected watch uh, is the smartphone. If we have to, to, to discuss this object as a whole for you. And once again, here I'm just speaking uh, as an individual, all the features that I could acquire in a smartwatch, I could get them better uh, in a smartphone, in my opinion. Uh, and, and all this... Uh, Tracking features, for example, or, or it's probably me being too too attached to aesthetics in general. But what a smartwatch brings uh, as an additional value on the table uh, is far from being enough to 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 delete all the the, the emotions that a that a traditional uh, mechanical watch brings to me. For example. Maybe. You, you know what? Maybe in like the 1920s, people sat around and had the same conversation about wristwatches versus pocket watches. Yeah, well, that wristwatch is real cool and all, but I don't know what it does that my pocket watch doesn't do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe maybe it's like one of those conversations. Technologists will probably say the biggest threat to the smartphone is the smartwatch, not the other way around, because the future is going to be further miniaturization and more wearables. They are saying that many people are going to be wearing optical devices that allow you to experience augmented reality. And this, of course, can feed you know video to your face and something to your ears so you can hear. Um, and the watch is going to be an important sensor and provide you with other information. As you know, on a wristwatch, uh, it's not what it does, it's how well it shows you that data. And I think the problem with most computing is there's a bunch of data available to you in theory, but it's really the data which is presented to you in a, in a good way, which has any meaning towards you. And I think that we love wristwatches because they present data to us in a meaningful way. I believe that smartwatches have the capacity to do this. And I, I like you, I don't want to be threatened that my traditional wristwatch experience is, is going to be, um, you know, somehow replaced by smartwatches. I, I, I happily wear both sometimes at the same time. I feel comfortable, you know, in both of those worlds. And I agree with you, the emotional experience is still superior with a traditional mechanical watch, but I just look a few steps ahead 
and think to myself that the smartwatch industry is probably going to become more like the wristwatch industry than vice versa. Yeah, and then and then we could extend that discussion in in, in one topic, which uh, because if you take the 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 scenario where uh, humans will wear uh, optics and and wrist device that actually monitor and track them and track the outside. Uh, this goes totally in one scenario, which is probably what scares me the most. Is we live in this paradigm where. Uh, we want humans to become more and more efficient and therefore almost like machines. And yet we spend also a lot of time to, to make machines be more and more human. For example, like, like the, the, the Alexa or the Google home devices and stuff like this where, uh, so we have this or even, uh, artificial intelligence, for example. And I always found this and this is, uh, um, a problematic that really appeared in the 21st century. We see it everywhere. And at the same time, I still keep faith that, that this won't happen. This to me would be an absolute disaster. I think uh, in terms of humanity, uh, people should keep machines uh, to do the hard labor so that humans could raise the, the, their mind and do something else. So that's my dream. So are you afraid that we're going to start having human-style conversations with our wristwatch more so than we already do? Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, 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 don't see, I don't see the point, you know, to, 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 to have machines that, that do it all for us uh, to the point, if that's not in, in the, for the sake of real people not having to work anymore. Uh, and I think we've made that mistake uh, with... Um, uh, automatization. I don't know if that's the correct word, but for example, you have two people building a house. Automation, yeah. Yeah, and the first guy builds a machine that can actually place the bricks, and instead of using that machine and both guys working uh, 50% of the time, that's not what happens. The first guy just fires his colleagues and make the full margin on the operation. And to me, that's, 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 that's just not smart on the long run, because you'll end up having 1% of, of uh, people owning these machines and the rest being uh, uh, lost and not knowing what they want to do. But, but this is what we, we've had this so many times throughout history. Look at the agricultural industry that had a very um, severe reliance on human labor, you know, almost overnight when tractors became available, just, you know, completely wiped out an enormous amount of, of previously needed human labor. We've had this so many times. I think that humanity has gotten through those so often that we can we can handle it. Like, yes, a bunch of jobs are simply going to go away, but I feel like humanity has said we've, we typically find something else for people to do. Yeah, that, that's what I've been hearing since, since I was born. Like, don't worry, this is progress and technique uh, will elevate humans to a higher state. I'm I'm gonna put it this way. I'm gonna put it this way because I agree with you in this way. The ultimate reason that we should be putting effort and emphasis into automation is to give human beings more free time. But yes. what has happened is that despite the automation, we don't seem to have that much free time right now, nor a lot of resources to use within our free time for a large part of the population. So if automation was supposed to free us up, it's not doing its job very well. No, all it does, it makes the society goes even faster. 
so products get built uh, quicker and delivered quicker and made in bigger numbers so that they get cheaper. So it only increases the, the speed. Uh, but, but coming back on, on, on the, the wearables, for example, we've seen the fail of the Google Glass. I think, it, when was it, like five, ten years ago? I don't, I don't recall precisely. But, and this was a very interesting uh, lesson to learn, I believe, because the, the Google Glass, I'm sure, they spent an enormous amount of, of research and development and, and money into that project on paper, having a pair of glasses that could actually track things around you and get you the knowledge directly in, into your eyes sounds quite seductive. And, and we've seen how society almost had this chemical or animal uh, reaction to it so, because this is really where you cross the line of using the body as a, as a medium to, to plug technology directly on it. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. I got to say this. You're right. Google Glass was not the uh, the revolutionary paradigm changer that uh, people, you know, sort of spoke about the technology. But Google, remember, it was never really officially available for sale. It was sold as a developer version, which means it was for testing purposes. They were always very open about the fact that they didn't think that technology was ready. And when they seized production, the idea was we'll return to this product when we figured things out like connectivity, battery life, the optics and things like that. It was a taste of what is to come. And I agree with you, it is not that revolution yet. But I don't think that it was a failure in the sense that I think it achieved what it was supposed to achieve for Google. Yes, yes. And then uh, maybe it's me being too, too, too poetic, but I, I hope that... Uh, Oh, oh, this is an interesting uh, line to draw. Um, personally, as a designer, when I started my studies, I wanted to change the world. This is why I did this job. I was good at drawing as a kid. Uh, I raced motorcycles as a hobby. So I, I combined this knowledge of fine arts with techniques, and I wanted to build objects that would uh, make the life of people better. This is why I did this job in the first place. Uh, going in then into the car industry, I quickly realized that designers were used as a weapon to to fast track uh, consummation of the the, the, the the yeah that people could buy more cars. This is how you use designers, unfortunately, and 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 realizing uh, down the road how much of an impact this industry had on. On, 
on Earth, uh, I made the transition to, to, to watches, for example, and, and, and the watchmaking industry to me has a fantastic role in the society we live today because we make small products, so they use very little resources, a mechanical Swiss watch, for example, starts from raw materials that are not especially precious. If you if you take, for example, a steel watch with brass movements and the the the, the base material to start with is not something that that uh, salvaged the or sorry or um, how can I say uh, use uh, rare resources. So so you can make an expensive watch, and along the way you have a lot of people that are highly skilled well-paid and work in good environments to build these products. And, and therefore, this is why I think this industry uh, has a good role to play in the future because you, 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 you keep good conditions for people and you still make business and you still uh, you don't have to ruin the, the economics um, to make it work. So, so in that sense, art and, and craftsmanship is a good recipe, I think, for, for, for the future. No, it's very inspiring, I think, for people that are curious about watch design or starting into it. I love seeing new people get into it, but it is a hard thing. Like people like Sylvan and, and others like him who are, you know, entrusted with these incredible legacies. I mean, the men and women that, are, that take care of the sort of legacy designs today, like they know the responsibility and weight that is on their shoulders. Like it is a hard task, but you know, I always still wonder, like, what, wh why not, why not some new designs, like every couple of years, like really crazy stuff? Because I think that you can make the traditional stuff, but also introduce something new. And I feel like brands used to do that, but today it's like you have either or. You have brands that just keep coming out with new stuff, or ones that there's like, no, we we never come out with something new, just little little differences. Why can't a brand do? updates to a classic and something totally novel in the same company in the same year? I think there is a, a snowball effect in the sense of uh, you had brave companies who tried recently, for example, uh, the AP with the code 1159. Um, I admired AP for having the, the, the courage to start from a blank piece of paper and said, you, you know what, we've done it 50 years ago with the Royal Oak. How about we break the ice and we come up with something fresh? But I think it's a question of timing as well. Seeing how much effort and resources they put into that product uh, and seeing the reactions that it initially received, uh, it makes me think that uh, probably the, the time frame was, was their worst enemy. People were not seeking for... Uh, brand new things at that time period. Now we are a few years down the line and, and for some reason, I think it's actually much harder for well-established brands to, to come up with new concepts than uh, independents, for example, because they don't have the weight of heritage on their shoulders and therefore the, the only way for them to, to, to even have exposure is to come up with groundbreaking stuff. When we see the more well, well, hold on, hold on. When you talk about these brands and it's hard for them, measured by what? Like they can come out with it, but you know, wh what is it that that? It, why is it hard for them? I mean, I sort of I sort of have a point here, but I want you to explain a little bit more about the thinking. 
Yeah, because people have expectations. So, so it's like, um, it's the same mechanism that, that, for example, you have your best friend, you know him for 10 years, and one day he shows up with a completely different outfit and haircut. And you would go like, whoa, whoa what's, what's wrong with you? That would be the first reaction. No, anyone. So, and it's the same if you take Breitling or even, for example, the closest example I have is the Rolex Destro recently launched at uh, Watches and Wonders. Right, right. Uh, the reaction from what I saw is mainly people being uh, disturbed more than amazed. People go like, oh, wait, what is that for? Except uh, a tiny fraction of people that are actually left-handed and they see the purpose of these things because they know how much of a pain it is for them to wear a watch on the right hand every day with the crown being on the wrong side and the date as well. So these guys, they get it right away. But the, the main majority of, of, the, of the people who watch this industry go like, what, what's wrong with it? And, and okay, but hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I, again, you're, you're not wrong. That is a lot of the feedback and things like that, for better or worse. But with that said, I feel so strongly about the fact that pretty much <clears throat> anything which is new, even if it's good, has skepticism right away. Like I've seen this throughout the watch industry and other industries. New designs are going to have a certain percentage of the people say, what? I don't like that. doesn't matter what it is. And then after a certain number of years of consistently being around, people start to accept it like every single time. So if you measure the success based upon knee-jerk reactions, like you said to the haircut, it's going to be a failure most of the time. But we already know that it's, it's a temporary thing. So why can't companies have a little bit of backbone, backbone and stick with it for a few years? I, I agree. And I, and I think the only way to establish new things, as you said, is to go through, to kind of walk through the desert of one to three years where you have people doubting this new thing until people wake up one day and say, oh, you know what, I, I, I slept on it and now I see what you meant initially. And I now right? think it's, but it's, it's like every thing. time. Yeah, yeah, I, I, sure. I remember having a meeting because you used to, used to be at Bamamassier, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Okay. So I remember a few years ago at SAHH, I was I was sitting at the Bama Massier booth with with uh, uh, Peter Brock, uh, the the car designer that did the uh, the Shelby Daytona, mm-hmm. and we had this wonderful long conversation. And he sat there telling me, uh, I forget the exact way he said it. It was very it was much more poetic than me, but that every single car design that's new is hated at first. And he told me that the, the Daytona was was made fun of by the Ford executives, that people wouldn't stop talking about how horrible it was. Um, and, and, and now it's celebrated as a design icon. And he had, again, a very slick way that I'm, I'm not sophisticated enough to repeat uh, of, of explaining this, this consumer mentality. But like, he was so passionate about it. I don't even know how it came up, but like, he was just talking about it. Like, this is so well known, but I feel like People are still so susceptible to this sort of a, I'll call it high school mentality that, you know, kids laugh at them for a second and, oh no, I have to change into something more familiar. Yeah, yeah I think it, and I also think this has to do with the proportion of different personalities we have in the society. We usually say in order for a product to, to reach mass expansion, 
first you need to convince the what we call early adapters or innovators these are roughly 10% of the population if you launch something new these are the guys you want to speak to only then you have the how is it called the early mass or something these guys they will buy the product only if their innovator friend told them that it's good and then you have the, the, yeah. the late adopters and these guys they buy it because they've seen it everywhere so, and so, the late adopters are the most vocal. Those yeah, sure. are the men and women doing all the negative comments on. The early adopters are never like, boy, I really like this and I'm going to try it. They just buy it. They're not going to yeah. say anything about it. Yeah, they buy it quietly, exactly, because they want to give it a try and they want to feel it before they speak. When actually you're completely right, the late adopters are the ones that get scared of this new thing and jump on the keyboard and go, what is this? F word thing, yeah, uh, which is, uh, and in that sense, social media may play a role in dragging down the the, the innovation, especially because brands <laughs> yeah. and we are guilty of it uh, are very sensible to to instantaneous feedback from social network. Okay, so okay, so your boss, uh, Mr. George Kern, uh, is someone that uses social media a lot. He very proudly says he does a lot of market research and uh, there and he communicates with people a lot there. What is his personal reactions? He can be sensitive. He can also be very thick-skinned when he sees feedback online. What are your discussions with him about that? I'm very curious. Well, that's one thing I love with George. He's very strongly driven. And, and that's, to me, one of the best qualities in a CEO uh, he can sit in a room and have 50 people from different fields telling him, please, George, don't do that. If he believes in it and if he committed to it, he will go for it. And I think it worked very well uh, for, for Breitling in the past five years. And this is how he turned the brand in a tremendous manner uh, to escape the, the, let's say, the, the highly technical slash instruments for professional era to the more global holistic approach that Breitling has today. And, and it has been hard. And I've been in, in meeting rooms where we had the previous Breitlings. So the instrument for professional guys telling George that making a three hand Navi timer was a complete, would be a complete massacre and it would never work. And that relaunching the chronomats was a disaster idea and blah, blah, blah. And now five years down the line, uh, these products that I described uh, are actually tremendous commercial success because people are much more open-minded than, than we were internally. That's that's fantastic to hear. We, and we don't have that much time left. I'm realizing that we need to do another podcast because we just have so much things to talk about. But I wanted to get a little bit of Breitling in the conversation because obviously you're the creative director of Breitling. And this is a brand that I'm a big fan of. The first question I'll sort of ask too, and that relates to the new Chronomat uh, 42, which is, an, is a fantastic watch. And if you haven't seen the Chronomat 42 with its its bracelet, uh, its design, it is, uh, it, is, it is a modern masterpiece. It's a great watch. But what did it take for that watch to be good? There, there, you know, oftentimes there's more ways of messing up a design than there are making it right what did you guys do internally correctly uh, to get that product done well? First, we, we, first, I had to get my education right. This is the first piece I, I did when I... Uh, 
Call Fred. At Breitling, exactly. So I had to get <laughs> educated uh, because Breitling is not a brand that you can get familiar with overnight. So I've been exchanging on WhatsApp and through phone calls with Fred day in, day out to understand what was the chronomat, what it has been built for, and what is the tone of voice of this product. So that was the first step. And second, we wanted to uh, extract the key features. So that would be the, the rider tabs on the bezel, the, the rotating bezel as well, the onion crown, and the bullet bracelet that had been lost for the past 20, 30 years or something, and which is uh, extremely complex to, to build still up to this day. We went away from the, the cylinders to ellipse on, on, on the strap. And I, I would say that to answer your question, the, we didn't take shortcuts. And, and that's the hardest thing to do. I know it's, it's, it's easy to say, like, of course, you're making a luxury Swiss watch, uh, and you should not take shortcuts. That's the theory. And in practice, you are in a big company with existing components of every kind, and it's much more pragmatic to use an existing glass, to use an existing strap, to use an existing set of hands for the health of the company. It's much more pragmatic. So I've been in meetings fighting and say, yes, we're going to make a new strap. And yes, it's much more expensive than the previous one. And yes, it's, it's going to be a new reference. And I'm sorry, but for the sake of the brand, it's not me as a crazy artist who making a little caprice. It, it's, it's for uh, the sake of the brand, yeah? so that the chronomat can get back the exuberance or the, the high tone of voice that this piece deserves because this is what it was meant to be when it was initially drawn. And it took a lot of convincing. But really, how ago. do you win those arguments? Because I think people understand how important this argument is. If you're not a fighter and very passionate like you are, uh, most designers that come up with something new will just be saying, oh, no, that's that's too many new parts. That's too expensive. We don't want to do that. It could be a, a totally foolish thing to say no, but to convince them of yes, you have to like, you know, metaphorically pound your fist on the table and say, no, you have to listen to me. You're making a mistake here. How do you win those arguments? To be totally transparent, I didn't. George saved my ass. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Thanks, George. <laughs> sure. I, have, I have to say it. You know, like you go, usually I have these arguments and I scream and I, and I, and I ask multiple times and I explain. But when, when and I understand uh, other teams, they have to, to, to make sure that after sales will be handled properly, that the cost will be kept in check, uh, that the delivery times as well. So these guys, they have objectives as well. And it's not for me to, to completely uh, ignore their set of objectives, uh, which is why usually I bring my point, they bring their point, we go to George, and thank God George is a very highly uh, product driven CEO. He understands that, that nobody can go home and justify and say, oh, look, honey, I just spent $10,000 on something that is uh, completely useless <laughs> if it doesn't bring you emotion and, and brand heritage and art and craftsmanship. That, that's the only, it's a completely rational buying decision. And then the bare minimum we can do is that when people walk out of the store with our product, they feel amazing. That's the only way. 
George knows a thing or two about emotion. He knows that people have to have a strong, powerful emotion. He understands how to sell and package emotion. And that's, um, that's, I mean, we can, George has been on the show. We had a great conversation with him. Um, Okay, one more question, even though we're sort of out of time here. And that has to go with some of the, I'll call it the weirder technology that Breitling does that I think is important. An, An example is something like, the emergency series or even, you know, the aerospace series with the, you know, high accuracy quartz and things like that. I don't think that either of these types of watches in today's age are massively big sellers for you, but they are dream items. They are, they help sort of define the personality and show the lengths that the brand goes and the types of people that might wear it. How important for you is it that Breitling has some of these, we'll call them halo products for lack of a term, that help idealize a theme or a particular type of wear, even if they don't represent what the average buyer is going to consume? I think they are extremely important because they are, uh, in a sense, uh, one end of our spectrum. Breitling is one of the brands with the widest spectrum of product, the widest portfolio. You have on one hand, for example, uh, the Breitling Premier and Top Time, which are very conservative, uh, traditional products. And on the other hand of the spectrum, you have, as you mentioned, the aerospace and the emergency. These products are the closest to a purely tool philosophy. So, So these are tools first and foremost. And if they can be ergonomic and and, and good-looking, then, of course, we'll do it. But that's not the main purpose of these things. So um, we came with the Breitling Endurance a few years back now. This uh, is an amazing commercial success, and we are very uh, grateful for this. Uh, And we do not forget the aerospace and the emergency. We are actually working on it, both of them. But George and I, we do not want to take shortcuts. So uh, we restart the project when it's necessary and uh, we do not want to rush. And if we launch something, it has to to meet the standards of the current society and, and the, our needs in terms of, of product. But we do not forget and there will be things to come in the years, uh, in, in the years, so 24, 25, we, we will come up with something. Wonderful. I love a little bit of a teaser for the future. Everyone, my guest has been the creative director of Breitling, Mr. Sylvain Bernaron. Sylvain, thank you so much. You're welcome, Ariel. It's always a pleasure to have a good talk about uh, watches. That's what we leave for here. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com.